Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Justice Stephen Breyer, the leader of the court's liberal justices, will retire after more than 25 years on the bench. Today, Justice Breyer announces his intention to step down from active service after four decades, four decades on the federal bench and 28 years on the United States Supreme Court. His legacy includes his work as a leading scholar and jurist in administrative law, bringing his brilliance to bear to make government run more efficiently and effectively. It includes his stature as a beacon of wisdom on our Constitution and what it means. And through it all, Justice Breyer has worked tirelessly to give faith to the notion that the law exists to help the people. Joining me is judiciary expert Carl Tobias, a professor at the University of Richmond Law School. Tell us about the timing of Justice Breyer's announcement even before the end of the term when justices normally retire? Well, it is unusual. Usually it comes at the last sitting or very close to the end of the term, but it's happened in all different periods, so it's not unprecedented. But it's nice in the sense that it provides plenty of time to replace him, and so the White House and the Senate can move carefully to find the finest person to replace him. There was a real push by liberals to get Justice Breyer to retire before the midterms might put Republicans in charge of the Senate. Do you think all the political considerations played a part in Justice Breyer's decision? If it were a different world, he might have stayed on the bench. That could be. There was substantial pressure, and some of it seemed too much, the advertisements and that type of thing. But People felt very strongly about this, and they remember, unfortunately, what happened with Justice Ginsburg. And so there was pretty intense pressure. How would you describe Justice Breyer's jurisprudence over the years? Well, I think he was a real student of the branches of government. You know, he was an administrative law professor when he was at Harvard before he went on the First Circuit and then on to the Supreme Court. And I think he really cared about issues like separation of powers and the branches of government and how the branches work together or in opposition. And I think he really relished working on those kinds of issues. He also wrote some books that were very interesting in terms of things like deregulation and other areas that interested him. So he had a real roving intellect. 
and a real command of the history of the federal government and how it worked. Would you say that he always voted with the liberals? I think it depended on the issue. There were some cases where he did not always vote in a way that was as progressive as some people might have wanted, uh, and some of his colleagues might have wanted. But I think he took each case as it came, and on the law and the facts, tried to do his best in terms of what he thought was the appropriate resolution of particular cases. Would you say that he was a consensus builder on the court? I think so. He certainly had a reputation for being extremely collegial. And I think if you were to see the way he treated lawyers arguing before him and his colleagues in questioning, he had incredible temperament and was very patient and always tried to work toward what he thought would be the best resolution of any particular case. So I think in that way, he's a model jurist, but he wasn't afraid to dissent when he disagreed with the majority of the court and in ways that were respectful of the majority's opinion, even as he criticized it. He also sometimes introduced some wacky hypotheticals during oral arguments. <laughs> yes. I guess the law professor in him couldn't resist, but it is true that he often did ask difficult hypotheticals, and sometimes that would frustrate lawyers, I assume, even the best who go before the Supreme Court. One of the leading candidates mentioned as a possible nominee to replace Justice Breyer is Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. She was confirmed just last year to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and three Republican senators voted for her confirmation. Might that make the confirmation process smoother? Absolutely. I also would expect those senators to withhold how they might vote until they see how she does in the process. If she is the nominee, I could see them saying, and often senators do, well, I thought she was just fine for the D.C. Circuit, but the Supreme Court is the highest court in the land, and because I voted one way doesn't necessarily mean that I will vote that way again. But don't forget that Democrats have not lost any votes, and none of their members have voted no on any of the lower federal court nominees to date. So if they hold together, there shouldn't be a problem. They don't even need any Republican votes, because if they're tied 50-50, the vice president can break that tie. And so we'll see how it plays out. But I do think the Democrats are likely to hold together, just as Republicans have very much held together, with some exceptions like Senator Graham and sometimes Senators Murkowski and Collins have voted for lower court nominees. But many Republicans have voted no on almost every one of Biden's lower court nominees, even people who were not controversial. Finally, how would you describe Justice Breyer's legacy? Well, I think he brought an incredible understanding of how the federal government works in the United States to the Supreme Court and applied his collegiality, his intelligence, his independence to every case that came before the court in a way that informed the way many cases were resolved. And I think he was always willing to dissent or to concur if need be. And I think he leaves a really strong legacy in the public law area. Thanks, Carl. That's Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. 
The consideration of race in college admissions has always been controversial and often misunderstood, as in a scene from the movie Dear White People. Hey, look, you guys still got affirmative action. That's all I'm saying. I'm sorry, what exactly are you doing here? All right, check this out. You ready? Obama, right? Leader of the free world. He gets into Harvard based on you. Too late. Affirmative action. You know who's not president right now? No. The guy who didn't get in. Now, more than 40 years after first considering affirmative action, the Supreme Court has agreed to hear two cases that could mean the end of race-conscious admissions. The case is challenging the admissions policies at Harvard College and the University of North Carolina seek to overturn decades of Supreme Court precedent that allow universities to consider race in helping to create a diverse student body. Joining me is Audrey Anderson, who heads the higher education practice at Bass, Barry & Sims. First, what was your reaction to the court taking up affirmative action? Were you surprised, concerned, unfazed? Well, June, I wasn't surprised that they granted review of the cases because some of the steps they've taken along the way. They asked for the views of the Solicitor General, wanting to know the United States government's views in the case, which is one clue that they're interested in the issue. And then they had actually looked at the petition at more than one of their conferences. So for two weeks in a row, they had considered the petitions. So when they granted it, I was not at all surprised. I am concerned for the longevity of affirmative action in college admissions, given that they have now granted review of the case, but we will see what happens. So the First Circuit affirmed the decision for Harvard's admissions process, and the Fourth Circuit hasn't decided the University of North Carolina case yet. So there was no split in the circuits, which often leads the Supreme Court to step in. Is the Supreme Court sort of jumping the gun? This is an unusual circumstance for them to be granting review of the case. Usually the court would not grant review where there was no split in authority. And that's one of the reasons why I'm concerned about the longevity of affirmative action. There really is no good reason to grant review here unless at least four members and likely five members of the court think that the decisions below are incorrect and they want to overturn them. That's the only reason that they would grant review of these cases. The Supreme Court has weighed in several times on affirmative action. Where does the Supreme Court doctrine stand now? Well, right now it is legal, constitutional, for universities to consider race in their admissions programs as long as they are doing so for the purposes of diversity in their programs to get the educational benefits of a diverse student body and as long as they do it in a way that is narrowly tailored to furthering that interest. So right now, that is legal and constitutional. The problem is, is that there's been a change in the Supreme Court since the court last looked at that question in 2016. And the changes in the justices on the court lead many of us to believe that the court today might come to a different conclusion than it did in 2016. So in the 2003 decision, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor predicted that racial preferences would no longer be necessary in 25 years. 
Was affirmative action always seen as a temporary measure, a stopgap? I think that many of us uh, have an aspiration that there will be a day that race is not an important factor about people in our society, that there will be a day when we don't need to consider race in order to uh, level the playing field. But many of us, the day that Justice O'Connor wrote that, thought that 25 years was a little bit optimistic. And I think that many of us today think that it really was overly optimistic to think that six years from now or five years from now, race will not be an important factor that still needs to be considered. Let's talk about the arguments in the case. What's the argument being made for race-neutral admissions, and what are the school's arguments against it? Well, the, the main argument that the people challenging affirmative action are making in, in their petitions to the Supreme Court is that this law that I just told you about that's been governing college admissions since 1978, actually, in the Bakke decision, which came before the 2003 Michigan decision, that that law is wrong, that the Constitution requires schools to admit students in a colorblind fashion, that the Constitution requires governmental actors and those receiving federal funds to make decisions in a colorblind way and to do anything else really violates the Constitution. That, that is their number one argument, and it is an argument that is very persuasive to a number of members of the current Supreme Court. From a legal perspective, um, on the other side, uh, there are many who believe that the 14th Amendment, uh, when you look at its history and the context uh, of what was happening at that time, was very much meant to protect the rights and further the rights of Black people in America who had just left the institution of slavery. And so a colorblind constitution was never uh, the idea of the framers. It was never the idea of the members of Congress who passed the 14th Amendment at that time. And so there is room for a limited consideration of race in this aspect of society. And the schools here want a diverse student body? Is that what's behind the admissions yes. process here? Yes. So what the schools want to, want to have is a student body that is widely diverse and diverse with all kinds of characteristics in mind. But one of those characteristics they want to have diversity on is race. And in order to meet the current legal standard, they have to show that they are unable to attain a racially diverse student body without considering race, that they have considered and used race-neutral means of trying to get racial diversity by doing recruiting efforts, by considering socioeconomic circumstances, by other means, and that still doesn't get them the racial diversity that they want to have in their student bodies to give their students the educational benefits of learning and living in a racially diverse environment. 
Let's talk about the plaintiffs in the case for a moment. Students for Fair Admissions was formed to challenge racial preferences. What's their strategy been to get affirmative action before this more conservative court? Yeah, well, they have been very, very successful um, with their strategy. And their strategy has been to bring cases against different universities in different circumstances and in different parts of the country. So they brought a case against University of Texas in Austin. They brought a case against Harvard. They brought a case against the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And their strategy was to get decisions from courts um, in those different areas in order to ideally get a split in authority from those courts, to have those courts come out different ways so they could say to the Supreme Court, hey, look, the courts are in disagreement on this. You need to decide. You need to um, make a decision. It actually turns out that they didn't even need to do that. The Supreme Court is so interested in this issue that the court decisions so far were all in line. They all found that the schools at issue here had met the constitutional standards, but Harvard, they took Harvard, and then they took the really unusual step, as you noted, June, in the North Carolina case. All we have is a decision from the trial court, Um, but Students for Fair Admissions said, hey, we have this Harvard case pending before you, we want you to grant certiorari before the appellate court even has a chance to consider the trial court's opinion in the North Carolina case so that you can consider the UNC case and the Harvard case at the same time. That's really um, appealing, I think, to the justices because they get to look at a private school and a public school at the same time. And it gives them two different fact patterns to consider as they are determining whether they're going to overturn um, affirmative act, the affirmative action laws. And what's your feeling looking at the court and the various justices' track records and viewpoints, any theory about how the court is likely to rule here? I know we're far away from that, but... I think going in, as I said, I go in with with the assumption that there are five justices who, as of today, would vote to overrule the precedent, because otherwise they would not have taken these cases. They would not have granted certiorari, even though it only takes four votes to grant certiorari. In this kind of a circumstance, the justices are savvy enough to say, well, we don't, we're not going to grant certiorari if we're only going to lose in terms of overturning this precedent that we want to overturn. So they talk amongst each other and figure out, okay, we really have five to overturn. But there is a long road, as you're um, uh, hinting at, between now and when the decisions are rendered. And there's going to be a lot of work done by the universities involved here and those that are supporting them in order to convince uh, the justices that they should maintain uh, affirmative action. 
you know, when the, these cases were up before the Supreme Court um, with the University of Michigan, Michigan cases in 2003, really uh, most people expected that affirmative action would go away at that point in time. People were very uncertain that they would be able to get five votes from the Supreme Court then to uphold affirmative action, and the they only did by one vote. It was a 5-4 vote. So I think that um, there is some hope that, again, by doing some very good lawyer, lawyering and making a very fact-specific argument that you might be able to convince some of the justices that they should keep affirmative action in place. It's either going to, if, if they're able to do that right now, my guess is you'll either do it by some very careful, careful factual lawyering or else by getting them to agree that they shouldn't overrule the precedent. So I'm going to be looking very carefully at whatever they say in the Mississippi abortion case this year about how they treat precedent, because that's going to give us some good guideposts for how they are going to treat the precedent in this affirmative action case. And it will um, let us know how they think they have to look at it. So it's going to be very interesting, but I, but I think that it's going to be a, a difficult road to get there. This term, the court is considering toppling, as you referred to, the landmark Roe v. Wade abortion rights decision. It's likely to expand Second Amendment gun rights and restrict what the EPA can do against climate change. So this case is not going to be heard until next term. As we've discussed before, the court might not want to have too many, at least Justice Roberts might not want to have too many controversial decisions in one term. So might the justices have been considering that when they took this case, not for this term, but for next term? I believe that they absolutely did that, June, because they have their meetings on Fridays, their conferences on Fridays, where they make decisions about what they're going to do with petitions for certiorari. Well, last Friday, they announced that they had granted cert in a different case, and they set that case with an expedited briefing schedule and said that argument in that case would occur in April of this year, this term. And then on Monday, they announced that they had granted certiorari in the affirmative action case and several others that they will hear um, next fall. So they made a conscious decision that, hey, of these cases we're granting cert in, we definitely don't want to hear the affirmative action case this spring. Now, you could there are other there are other um, reasons you could say they didn't want to hear the affirmative action case this spring. They didn't want to put it on an expedited briefing schedule because there's going to be a ton of um, amicus briefs that are going to be filed, and they don't want to put that kind of pressure on all the amici. But I think that the more likely reason is they know that they're going to be um, undoing some precedent this term, and they don't want to undo too much precedent at one time. Audrey, I just want to ask you, eight states, including California, have banned the consideration of race in college admissions. Isn't that contrary to Supreme Court doctrine? Well, what the Supreme Court doctrine says is just that universities may consider race. It doesn't say they must consider race. It just allows you to do it under the Constitution. 
So those states where it's disallowed, there is then a state law that says, well, in our state, you may not do that. So it's it's not really contrary. All the time, states disallow things that would otherwise be allowed under the federal constitution. And what's interesting is that in those states, June, we see what happens when institutions are not allowed to consider race in admissions. And what we see is that the percentages of Black students go down, that some of the universities are able to keep their overall percentage of minority students maybe the same, but the percentage of Black students goes down. Thanks, Audrey. That's Audrey Anderson of Bassbarian Sims. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Some New York school districts abandoned mask mandates after a Long Island judge declared them unconstitutional on Monday. But by the end of Tuesday, the school districts were told to put the requirement back in place. As New York Governor Kathy Hochul appealed the ruling and an appellate court judge temporarily stayed the Long Island judge's ruling. 
This is the latest whipsaw for parents trying to navigate the pandemic with school-aged children. State Education Commissioner Betty Rosa acknowledged the burden and thanked school communities for their patience during this process. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Bob Van Voris. Tell us about the ruling of the Long Island judge about the governor's mask mandate. Sure, June. On Monday, a judge in Nassau County on Long Island, New York, uh, named Thomas Rademacher, ruled that the state's requirement for uh, people statewide to wear masks indoors in settings where it's impossible to socially distance. He ruled that 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 regulation issued by the state health department was basically akin to passing a law and that the health department doesn't have the authority to pass laws that the state legislature. Uh, So he ruled that the regulation was void and this came uh, as news on late Monday, kind of throwing school districts and, and other people into a little bit of chaos to kind of figure out what they were going to do the next day when students reported to school. Was this because the state legislature had given Governor Cuomo special authority and then took it back? Well, that was one of the, the reasons. The state legislature gave Governor Cuomo emergency powers. And, of course, uh, Cuomo uh, had to leave office, and his lieutenant governor, Kathy Hochul, who's now the governor, um, in December, her administration, through the, the health department, issued uh, these these regulations. But, uh, as you say, the legislature had kind of scaled back uh, the powers that it had given Cuomo to deal with an emergency and, you know, also for Hochul to use when she became governor for her to deal with an emergency. So the judge, uh, Judge Rademacher, said the, you know, that Hochul didn't have authority to issue these regulations and that certainly the health department on its own without authority from the legislature didn't have uh, the ability to institute this requirement. Rademacher told Hochul and the health department, look, if you want to um, put this into place, you've got to go to the legislature, you've got to ask for a law and, you know, sign it into law and, and then you've got your requirement. Do you know how it's been handled in other states? Because health regulations are usually handled at the state and local level. And with vaccines, the Supreme Court seemed to indicate that's where they should be handled. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, regulation of health is uh, a state and local uh, sort of responsibility. We've got a a real patchwork of different requirements throughout the states. There's states like New York, uh, often uh, run by Democrats, that are imposing mask mandates, vaccine mandates. There are states like Florida and Virginia, where the uh, governors are barring local governments from imposing those kind of mandates on people. Also, in New York State, you've got localities, including New York, uh, New York City, which is the biggest of them all and has the biggest school district. New York City has its own mask mandate already. So, you know, whatever happens at the state level is not going to displace that, but it is going to make a difference for for people in the rest of the state. Was New York City's mask mandate challenged New York City's mask mandate and vaccine mandates and various requirements for uh, for people generally and for public servants uh, has been challenged, and there have been 
a variety of rulings. Most of the mandates remain in place um, and have been upheld by courts. But, you know, it's, uh, as I say, it's a patchwork. You've got uh, on the, the mask mandate that the Long Island judge struck down, there was an Albany judge that, you know, viewed the same thing, the same requirement, and, and approved it. So it may be that it, it's going to, you know, we're going to have to wait for New York's highest court, the Court of Appeals, to rule on some of these questions before we have clarity. So where does it stand now? The state took an appeal. Where did they take an appeal to? The state took an appeal to uh, the second department, uh, the appellate division, which is a court in Brooklyn that reviews cases from uh, Long Island and, and Brooklyn and, and surrounding areas. That court importantly issued a stay blocking Judge Rademacher's ruling. So the mask mandate remains in effect at least until Friday when they're going to hold a full hearing uh, on whether to grant the longer stay for the time it takes them to hear the case, to read the briefs, and to come to a decision. It's a decent bet uh, since they granted the emergency stay until Friday that the court is going to want to keep the status quo in place and to allow the mask mandate to remain rather than throwing things into chaos. But we'll have to see what, how the, the full uh, panel rules on, on Friday. It's a decent bet. And because Long Island is generally more conservative with more conservative judges than the appellate division in Brooklyn. That's right. And Judge Rademacher is someone who has been in office uh, on the bench, on the uh, New York um, trial court bench, for, for a couple of years, um, he ran as uh, a conservative, although he also ran, as many judges do, on the Democrat and Republican lines as well. But uh, certainly Nassau County, uh, which is on the western end of, of Long Island, is known to be a Republican stronghold uh, locally. Bob, do you know what school districts are doing? Are they complying with the mandate still? Well, at least initially, there was some confusion. Uh, it was unclear whether there was going to be a stay or whether Judge Rademacher's uh, ruling basically threw the requirement out. So there were a handful of school districts that were inclined anyway to want to get rid of the mandate who told uh, parents that their kids were uh, allowed to come in with, with or without masks, that it was uh, optional. Um, there were other districts that uh, were fully behind the mandate that said, hey, look, we're going to keep this in place. Um, and and indeed, even if the state withdraws the mask mandate, uh, localities that, that want to impose, impose it can continue to do that. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Bob. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Bob Van Voris. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry 
and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.